So, I, again, this was one of the things that I used to think about, I want to say, the attractions and entertainment industry, was that it was, um, I kind of felt that it was both possibly unimaginative or didn't actually go to the extremes or probe the edges. And the more I interacted with people in the industry, I suddenly realised, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. That they're actually way better than I imagined. They're actually crafting something which will appeal to the 95th percentile. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Calling all thrill makers, fun creators, and attraction pros. Get ready for the ride of a lifetime at IAPA Expo 2023, the global attractions industry's premier event. Join us in Orlando, November 13th to the 17th for a week of learning, networking, and exploring trends and new technologies. Discover innovative solutions for growth that will supercharge your business and enhance your career. Register by November 10th at iapa.org slash iapaexpo. That's I-A-A-P-A dot org slash I-A-A-P-A-E-X-P-O to save up to 30% and get an additional $10 off with the code APROS. That's A-P-R-O-S. We'll be there and we hope to see you too. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fan-thrilling-tastic. Ah, you put a word in the middle of the word there. I did, I did. And it has everything to do with our conversation today and my question for you. Okay. If I were to ask you to define the word thrill, how would you define that? I wouldn't define it nearly as well as Brendan Walker. (laughs) But if I were not thinking about this amazing interview with him, I it would probably have the word adrenaline in it. It would okay. probably be like like heart racing. It would probably uh it would probably have some sort of like anxiety type emotion, but not necessarily in a bad way. Uh you know, when I think of roller coasters, I think of thrill. When I think of a haunted house, I think of thrill. When I think of I don't know, someone bungee jumping, not me. Not yet. (laughs) Whitewater rafting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The first word that comes to mind for me is excitement. Okay. Which all those things that you just mentioned, roller coaster, bungee jumping, all that, um, I would imagine for the right people would be exciting. Um, But I would also imagine for many people, it could be terrifying, but that's also maybe part of the thrill, part of the emotion. Um, And today we really get to, I would say dissect the concept of not only the emotional impact of a, of an attraction, but creating the emotion and, and the formula behind that 
you know, when I think about my days of of playing roller coaster tycoon, I just wanted to make the biggest, tallest, fastest roller coaster I could, not thinking about what goes on from a emotional standpoint when people are riding it and and all of those factors that you have to take into consideration. This interview, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to artificially inflate our stats here, but this is one where you're going to have to listen to multiple times. It is, I mean, we, you and I both are just like aggressively taking notes. Like I, I can go back and like take way more notes, like just, just listening back to it. Uh, Brendan Walker uh, is a professor. Um, so that is that is an, an important point to note. Uh, he is also the founder director of Studio GoGo and Thrill Laboratory, and he is a thrill engineer. And he shares uh, he shares his backstory on on how we got into the the theme park business, which is kind of a funny story actually on on his perception of the theme park industry before coming into the industry. And uh, you know he shares with us so much of of the process of what goes into creating a thrilling experience and there's there's so much granularity in it i know we love using the word granular and brendan used it a couple of times here too yes. that gets very specific into walking us through what that looks like and one of the things i found fascinating from a from a human behavior perspective you know when when i'm talking to leaders and i'm i'm coaching people so often we're talking about emotions and how people feel about things but I've never gotten to the level and the depth that Brendan gets into when he talks about actually designing experiences that will create a specific emotion. Um, And that to me was absolutely fascinating. Just kind of trying to understand how we, again, kind of go through those experiences and how it might affect you differently than it might affect me. Yeah. And, and he talks about the the formula too. We're not going to give you know too much away here. Honestly, I don't think we either of us would be able to do it justice. <laughs> anyway. But when you think of thrill, you you think of something that, you know, that is kind of intangible and kind of abstract. But he said, no, there's the formula for thrill. It can actually be quantified. And he walks us through what that looks like. Yeah. He also talked about um failing positively and the the concept that, you know, yes, you want to you know, go in and have a good time, but there may be also these, these opportunities to, um, you know, kind of go to the edge and feel what that's like. And again, he's going to explain it much better than I ever could since I just heard it. Um, but he really talks about so many different things and, and so many different emotions and and how we create those and how we experience those. It's, it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, the, I think my biggest takeaways is he said, when people walk into a theme park, there's basically an unwritten contract of the guest is saying, I trust you, right? I'm I'm turning myself over to you. You're going to take me to the edge from that thrill standpoint. But I know that there's a lot of the work and that, you know, that you've done to, to sort it all out and figure it all out. So yes, I'm going to go beyond my comfort zone today, knowing that, yeah, it'll be okay in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. So should we step outside of our comfort zone, take some more notes and get to this interview with Brendan? Let's do it. Hey, Brendan, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. We are so excited to have you on today. How are you? Very good, thanks. Great to see you, Josh. And well, and Matt, of course. I mean, I can see you on the screen as well, Matt. <laughs> There's no secret <laughs> there, is there? Glad to see you too. <laughs> yeah. So, Brendan, you are a thrill engineer. What does that mean? Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself and what you do. Oh, my word. I mean, that's like one of the questions that my mum used to ask me. said, when anybody asks me what you do, 
I've no idea what to say to them. Um, the, the thrill engineer, uh, I coined that phrase back in 2007 because there's um, a lot of what I do is uh, very sort of objective, which is sort of thinking about emotions, thinking about the way we structure and create emotions <clears throat> in people. And the... <clears throat> The, the sort of subjective bit, the thrill bit, the, the emotions, is very much sort of a creative side. So I think it's a real reflection of those that duality uh, when we're thinking about entertainment, that we can learn so much by looking at it through a science lens and so much by looking at it through an arts and a creative lens. And I just mash those two up. I think my, my career can really be summarized as a sort of a, always a juxtaposition between two positions of looking at something. So I, I generally get involved in uh, consultancy for new rides and attractions. It's either uh, helping to uh, conceive you know, the new concepts or right at the other end of the spectrum, helping to amplify and market new rides and attractions and experiences. And also day to day, I mean, we set up uh, another company recently, Studio GoGo, -Go, where we create uh, virtual reality for um, existing mechanical rides, so adding VR experiences to existing mechanical rides to give them a bit of a 21st century boost. So we own an operator, so we've got a lot of experience in owning and operating rides here in the UK. And in fact, we've been over to the States as well with a couple of our rides touring the brand. So, Brendan, I'm curious if we could go back a little bit, um, you know, before we started recording, you talked about being an artist and, you know, um, you know, really, uh, you know, big uh, installations and things like that. So how did that then transfer into being a thrill engineer and working in the attractions industry? Well, I was originally trained as a, an aeronautical engineer. So I worked for uh, British Aerospace Military Aircraft, actually, for five years in the UK uh, as an apprentice and also studying at Imperial College and I kind of left I mean I had this sort of very sort of glamorous idea that you know working uh, in that industry would literally be fast-paced but the, the the aircraft I was coming in on which was the Typhoon fighter at the time uh, was just coming off the end of the production line the next fighter that they were looking at producing I'd have retired by the time it actually took off. So I would never have seen a whole project all the way through. And it was moving, you know, at a snail's pace, 40 years uh, to, to from the conception through to the realization of a project. So I left and went to uh, art school to retrain in uh, industrial design. So I thought, well, maybe if I'm looking at products, there's a faster pace to this. And I went into college thinking I was going to come out designing white goods, you know, irons, kettles, fridges. I mean, that was super sexy to me. All I wanted to do is grab a magic marker and just draw things with this, uh, what they called a farkle, which is this little bing, you know, on the corner where things are shiny. And, and I met somebody when, when I was at the Royal College of Art, um, an artist and designer called um, Tony Dunn. And he really opened my eyes up to um, sort of social and community-based art. And that is, what I'd say, people at the center of design, you know, people-centric design. And I left university, the Royal College of Art, making pirate radio stations and hugely un unemployable <laughs> with a massive skill set in engineering, which I'd abandoned. And very slowly because of the I think slightly unusual people I was meeting because I was making very bad pirate radio stations in the UK they were micro broadcasting 200 meters I mean they were appalling um 
but the people I was meeting said, well, why don't we, uh, for example, as an architect who said, why don't we make a ride for this uh, Cologne art fair? Uh, we, we've been commissioned to make something for BMW. Could we do something inside a car? Oh. And I said, well, <clears throat> let's make um, an installation based around JG Ballard's crash. So this is where we took a car, we put hydraulic rams into the seats, and very slowly as the, you got into the car, it was all blacked out. There were strobe lights in there. Obviously we had the whole speaker system. Um, as there was a narration of J.G. Ballard's very graphic description of a crash and people's teeth being crushed into the, into the dashboard, there was a hydraulic ram that very slowly crushed you as the, as the rider against the dashboard, obviously within safe limits. And then the whole thing was over. It lasted three minutes. You got out, there was smoke, there were sirens. And it was hugely popular. And, and I started to realise that knowing engineering, knowing how to move people, you know, thinking on the scale of moving people through space safely uh, was a real um, asset. So then I started making much larger mechanical sculptures, making electromechanical installations for museums like the Science Museum, uh, which involved... Uh, all sorts of uh, rotating structures, moving um, conveyor belts with objects and things on them. Things most people would think were quite risky. And uh, and then I think it was that that realisation that there was a uh, an element of thrill in everything I did. There was this sort of emotional quality and I was starting to move people, you know, through space. I was thinking, yeah, it really started to have all the language, even though... I didn't even know it at the time. It had all the language of amusement parks, spectacle, rides. And I was kind of like in denial. In fact, the very first talk I ever gave about engineering thrill was at, at, um, uh, was at Tate Modern in London at a conference about uh, designing emotions. And my whole manifesto was absolutely against the commodification of thrilling experiences in fact, I had a few damning things to say about the theme park industry, how I'd never work for them. And, you know, real thrill seekers were more like wine connoisseurs. And there was a whole complexity to, to thrill seeking. And um, I wrote a small booklet, The Taxonomy of Thrill, which was about how it was a kind of a blueprint and, and it's still available. But it was how to design and create thrilling experiences. And also a little bit of uh, science in the back, which I'm sure we'll come on to. There's a formula for thrill. But um, it was that booklet which then got the, the, the then uh, studio uh, manager of Merlin Magic Making, which was Tussauds Studios back at the time, ordered 13 copies for all their creative directors and then invited me in as a visiting creative director to run uh, future research projects for them. And I was going, you know what, maybe I have actually got something to say to this industry who I was so damning about. And they were like hugely excited by the things I had to say and obviously uh, because I was challenging or being very provocative about the status quo um, in the amusement and attractions industry. So that was kind of like my journey, sort of a provocateur uh, and troublemaker turned um, a complete uh, lover and advocate for the industry. It's so fascinating. I feel like there's so many different directions we, we can go from here and so much to unpack. I, I would love to talk about the emotional quality of thrill, and you you talked about the the formula of thrill. Can you I expand on on those a little bit? Yeah. Well, I I bring science into it. At uh, I'd always say, you know, because of the thrill laboratory and, and the thrill engineer, which is very much about the communication of the science. 
people get quite excited and fixated on that. And I would say science is a great lens to maybe bring either as inspiration at the start or maybe, you know, the first 5% or maybe the final 5% if you want to, if you created something brilliant and you want to refine it and tweak it, etc. So uh, that said, there's a caveat, you know, there's, there's a full 90% which creatives and people who are dedicated hard workers, that, that is, you know, territory which is indisputable but the science bit which um really intrigued me i said both for inspiration and as a sort of a way to, to refine thrilling ideas um was based around well a very simple model i found about um uh, the way that designers describe or psychologists describe emotions that there are two dimensions to th to thrill uh or rather two dimensions to any emotion uh, there's arousal, which is adrenaline and your body being pumped up and ready for action. Um, you know, your heart gets faster, your hands get sweaty, your sweaty, your pupils become dilated. And and then there's another quality, which is called valence. I mean, that's what scientists call it. It's pleasure, whether we like something or not. And uh, that's related to dopamine and, and the sense of euphoria. Now, there's a lot of science. I mean, at MIT, there's one particular group read, led by a scientists called Ros Picard, who've done a lot of work in sort of um, monitoring emotions. This all is around a, a, an industry which is human-computer interaction, which, you know, Apple and Microsoft, they've all been doing for years, this whole area. But they always talked about <clears throat> the startle response, which is just the arousal side. And again, that is something when people talk about thrill, this was all part of my shtick, it was like, People talk about adrenaline junkies, about people going to extremes. I go, no, no, there's, this, there's another quality. It's, it's pleasure. Uh, you say the scientists call it the hedonistic tone. And I did a, a set of interviews around 2005 in a project called Chromo 11, because Chromo 11 is the um, where the thrill-seeking gene, uh, the chromosome 11 is where the thrill-seeking gene D4DR lives. And so that was the name, the sort of placeholder for the project. I interviewed 50 people about their own thrilling experiences, uh, everything from whitewater rafters, you know, extreme base jumpers, but then people who also reported being thrilled by knitting, uh, by cross-dressing, by all sorts of unusual activities. So really out on the fringes and a lot of really core stuff. And without fail, they all reported that they uh, felt what they described sensation of thrill when there was a sudden and a large increase in both pleasure and arousal at the same time and so I did a little bit of digging and, and applied some of the the engineering principles I'd looked at and we sort of started looking at these these qualities and yeah there's there's you can quantify thrill uh, in terms of its pleasure and arousal so the form of thrill the walker thrill factor is the, there will be a massive and large increase in thrill if there's a massive and large increase in pleasure and arousal at the same time. It's uh, It has to be big, it has to be fast. So that's the, the sort of science side. So constantly if I'm thinking, God, how do I actually improve this? You know, How do I improve this moment? I'll always fall back on those two qualities. But then the question is, well, what do we have in our arsenal to actually start to play with those qualities? And, you know, again, looking at the interviews I conducted, there are there are five cornerstones that I will fall to as a creative practitioner, which are areas to do with um, sensation. So essentially um, stimulating any of our senses 
I mean, if we're talking about roller coasters and other thrill rides, we've clearly got sort of very sort of visceral sensations going on, but sound, taste, touch, all those elements. Then there's the spectacle, uh, which is very much about questioning um, our sense of, uh, well, our beliefs. Um, so that's, uh, we've got things like um, uh, wonder and awe and magic uh, playing into, into these, uh, into that category. Then we have power and control. And this is, can be related to uh, gameplay. So, you know, it's whether we're, our social standing, you know, if we're playing a game, are we winning? Are we taking part? Are people watching us? Do they think we're great? You know, roller coasters are fantastic performance uh, venues. You know, you're not just having a, a ride, you're performing, you know, you're screaming, people are seeing you, your friends are seeing you. Um, so there's that whole area, it's a very sort of social quality. And then the the, the fourth one is, uh, he said, scratching his head going, what was the fourth one? Um, uh, being valued, that's right. So again, this is, um, uh, sorry, that was what we just talked about being valued. The power and control obviously was the, the kinetic energy, the physical forces, being on top of a hill, etc. So that's power and control, being valued was the social. The fifth one, what I call immortal or mortality, <laughs> not really immortality, mortality, there's two aspects to this. One is uh, both the avoidance of danger to life and limb. So this is very much about the whole work around the balance between risk against benefit. And then also there are things which will proliferate life, sating hunger, uh, quenching thirst, having fulfilling sex. No surprise, they're all really thrilling things. And thrill, I mean, in a nutshell, is our evolutionary reward for the uh, perseverance of human life on earth. And that is it. You know, it's become a little bit more, I'd say, perverted and changed in the modern world, how we seek, how we get that reward. But that is the basic principle. And it isn't an emotion, it even precedes emotions. It is the change in emotional state from something which isn't very good to something which is really great. And if you can do that quickly, you're gonna thrill someone. Wow, I feel like I'm I'm in in college somewhere, right? And we're learning <laughs> about this. And and I know you're a professor, so we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But I'm wondering if we can if we can maybe dive a little deeper into the process of doing this for so many different people as you're designing an attraction or designing an experience. Because as you mentioned, the thrill could be base jumping or it can be knitting. And where do you where where do you come to you know bring that together to say what's going to be thrilling for most people when they when they experience something yeah so i and again this was one of the things that i used to think about when i say the attractions and entertainment industry was that it was um i kind of felt that it was both possibly unimaginative or didn't actually go to the extremes or probe the edges and the more I interacted with people in the industry, I suddenly realized, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. There's, they're, they're actually way better than I imagined. They're actually crafting something which will appeal to the 95th percentile. So as I say, you know, if, if I'm working with students or any other artist who are making something go, look, I could do something which is really thrilling. It's going to be, we're going to throw you out the back of this thing. You're going to land in a, you know, in some bubble bath. You're going to do this. I'm going, yeah, but maybe only like, 
two out of 10 people want to do that. How about 9.5 out of 10 people want to do that? Going, and how do you do that and actually make it feel incredibly special for everybody who, you know, have all got different psychological makeups? And, you know, I'll go back to uh, one of the, um, the great guys. I mean, he's dead now, but Marvin Zuckerman, who was at Delaware Tech, I think he was, you know, he was one of the great, great grandfathers of thrill seeking. He understood um thrill-seeking metrics he had this thing called the sensation seeking scale and there were there were four elements on this so any personality uh you know could be profiled in terms of thrill and adventure seeking which is very much the adrenaline stuff i was talking about uh the sensation seeking which is more to do with the the sort of magic and people who like theater there's susceptibility to boredom, which obviously we like to avoid. And then there's also a disinhibition character uh, ca uh, category, which uh, is whether you like to be a public performer or not. And you can score people, you know, on a zero to 10 basis. So we suddenly got like a 40 point scale and any of us could have a real mixture of all these different responses. So you go, and that's just like a simple kind of scale. So you think like 95% of people coming through a gate with all these complex behaviors and psychological profiles, where do you start? And that's like, okay, that's where you go, I have no idea. Um, I think you, you know, I would always start with um, empathy. So I, I don't think it's possible to start with uh, market surveys of going, these are our target profiles. I mean, you can roughly, you know, to to try and imagine or to rather, or rather, let's say I'm sat in a room with, with uh, other creative directors. That kind of marketing data, who is our audience, may give us the archetypes, the types of people, you know, a handful of people. It's It's a family unit. It's... It's a group of friends with one person who may be a wheelchair user. It's, you know, a mixed group of, you know, mom and pop, grandma, granddad, really young kids. And then it's taking that journey and being able to empathize and also live vicariously through that group's eyes about what may be appealing. So I think there's a, certainly an element of, um, of, of imagination and theater which comes into this, being able to play out scenes in your mind, storyboard, discuss, you know, and really imagine what these people will be feeling and sensing through that. So, yeah, I think statistics get you so far, but it is that sense of being able to empathise, uh, which will really start to get you um, able to uh, interrogate and to assess the ideas as they start to evolve. How much is the pre-experience and the post-experience factor than that when looking at empathizing or living vicariously through through their behaviors through their emotions the i'd say that the pre-experience from from waiting in line for a ride right it's it's building that anticipation it's it's second guessing myself right it's getting anxious it's getting nervous you know for you know for maybe that you know, for for many individuals and then afterwards kind of just giving the example of of, of that family you know are they are they closer together, right? Have they have they bonded? What happens, you know, after it happens? I'm curious as far as just how how much that goes into the full process. Yeah. So I think the particularly um, on the rides and experiences that I've produced, which are 
you know, you could probably term, well, if they're not Studio Go-Go, which are much more embedded in, in parks and attractions, you know, that we'd, that we'd recognise. The other experiences I've created, more experimental pieces, have been more in an art context, as in they'll be temporary, they're set up at festivals for three or four days. But nevertheless, those dynamics you're talking about are exactly the same. They're location-based visitor attractions. Uh, people have been seeded with the idea six months before they've imagined going well shall we go shall we go who's going to go uh let's book it going that's a moment of thought where well, we're actually going to go then there's the countdown to that moment so it's all those touch points you know in advertising we'll talk about you know each one of those times whether it's the posters the receiving of the tickets whether they're digital or whatever it's the journey there um each of those is has its own thrilling potential uh possible so you know, some of the rides I've done in the past, so the uh, I'm very keen to get involved in, in the design of the ticketing, uh, the, the the poster design, you know, so that whole marketing experience. So that's the, even before there, let's say, in our live space, our park. And then in the park itself, it's, um, I think, the one of the great things, having been involved in the conception of rides at an early stage, was having uh, the marketing directors going, show me the... Um, uh, give us a drawing of what the press are going to be showing in their newspapers. Again, you haven't even designed the ride yet, you know, but what's that going to look like? Because that image there is going to be the one that sells it into the press, that sells it into the public, that seeds the idea of just how exciting this is. What's the nugget? What are the two lines? Why is this ride so special? How are people going to get it? What's going to excite them? So constantly, even just as you're conceiving the idea that visitor journey and what those touch points are going to be where people are going to stand and go wow look at that or in the queue with you know with the ride whipping past them um and obviously well i'll come on to souvenirs in a moment but the so that whole pre-stage of of anticipation um is really critical and i think the granularity of anticipation goes say from months to weeks to days, to hours, to minutes, to you know, say the, the microseconds of even being locked into a ride. I did a study on uh, Oblivion at Alton Towers, and we found that the levels of arousal of the ride itself, and this was the world's first vertical drop row, well, over vertical drop row the coaster, the level of arousal of actually being locked into the, into the seat, um, the drop feature itself only reached 80% of that moment. And that was like incredible. Somebody's really done their job incredibly well to sell that as being probably like one of the most terrifying things that anybody wants to do. So much so that you're going, I can't escape. And you know, and I think that's amazing, that moment too. So I think those 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 steps, you know, as I say, that that granularity, uh, you know, changes scale is 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 critical to understanding that journey. But then the, then we get this lovely effect afterwards, which I'm really interested in particularly with work with uh, visitors of mixed ability who may not some may get on a ride some may not it's how do you um continue that that journey beyond the ride and i'm thinking about rides as islands of experience within a park where there'll be multiple experiences obviously you're moving between and there's this sense of afterglow so you know in chemical terms um, the people who've been on the ride have, are, are awash 
with uh, adrenaline and dopamine. Uh, they have this like euphoric effect, which which I term the, the afterglow. For some people, it can last for minutes. Other people report it lasting for hours. And during that time, you've got some energy you can play with, whether it's merchandising going, you need this because obviously it's going to capture your experience and you can relive your moments again and again. So in a sense, it's both a service and, you know, upselling in some ways, you know, there's the whole sort of souvenir and merchandising. Uh, but then it's the conversations and the walking. So I love Al uh, Alton Towers for that reason, that it's within Parkland. There is a fair distance between various zones and there is uh, time for uh, decompression and reflecting and talking. And I think that's, um, I don't think it has, you can't go from thrill to thrill uh, and not A, be exhausted and B, become desensitized. So there is that, um, and I think value can be built between those islands, as I say, with sort of strengthening thoughts and memories and bonds between people. So yeah, it's, it's the fairground showmen have a term for this, British fairground showmen. There's an old Romany term called the toba, T-O-B-E-R, um, which describes the way in which uh, a fairground showman will piece together uh, the the small rides of uh, games of chance at the front, the the midway, you know, the flat rides in the middle, uh, the big white knuckle rides at the back. There is no set way of moving through this, but there is a sense of building anticipation, building up, uh, um, uh, building up to the big, you know, finale at the end, and uh, and allowing space. I think it is a little bit like a pachenko machine. You know, you've dropped people through this. Area, they can find their own way through and ultimately they will get to that big finale at the end how they find their way through is kind of like uh always a sort of you know it's variable i mean you can't you can try and funnel people but it's they're all personal individual journeys and i think individuals are are the most excellent curators of their own experience given a landscape of possibilities yeah you know, one of the things I'm curious about, Brendan, is you're talking about these emotions and the and the way we process these experiences is, you know, you're talking about these thrills and things that, as you're describing them, for most people would be positive. But is there a negative side to that emotion that people might feel or something that says, I don't want to do that, or maybe even a haunt where you're actually scared, where there's obviously arousal and maybe a different kind of pleasure as you're going through a haunted experience? Yes, and that's, you know, it's intriguing when people, I get asked, where is the thrill, particularly when it comes to Halloween, you know, where, where is the thrill in being, or the, the entertainment, in being scared? And, and, and why would I do that? I mean, it's a really interesting space. Well, let's take something that isn't, let's say, horror-themed, but which something is generally looks uncomfortable or beyond our... Um, you know, our, our comfort zone, let's say, for example. So there's a there's a, a psychologist in the, in the 1940s, Donald Hebb, he had this, this graph of the optimum level of arousal theory, which kind of like showed it was a, a bell, upside down sort of bell graph. And, you know, if a ride's going faster and faster, it'll generally get more pleasurable. Then you reach a point where you're going, it just doesn't feel right. I'm starting to feel a bit queasy or whatever. And so you want it to go a bit slower. So this is optimum speed. But also at the same time, there's this flat line, which is shooting up, 
which is your level of risk. And if you perceive, you know, so this is like the risk benefit thing. So as the ride goes faster, you think, well, as the Edwardians thought, over seven miles an hour, my arms and legs will fly off. You know, okay, we get seven miles an hour. That's not happened. Uh, <laughs> going more and more up. And if the uh, your perception of risk outweighs the 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 perceived reward or the sensation, then it starts. Then you want to retreat from whatever it is you're doing. So, for a lot of people, the profile of those two curves, you know, is is very different, and where they intersect is very different. But the the real trick for a ride is the perception of risk and the real risk. So you can actually make the perceived risk a marketing trick to be much greater. You make the real risk uh, much less. And this is where visitors coming into a theme park setting, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a there's an unwritten contract that happens on your entry into a theme park where you say, I'm willing to give myself over to you. It's a bit like going to live theater. I know you've thought through a whole bunch of stuff. I know I'm safe. Uh, somebody's designed this. It's a bit like uh, going to an experimental restaurant going, this looks crazy, but somebody's thought through this. I'm sure it's going to taste great because these guys are going to make great rides, whatever, you know, so I'm going to go with it. And you think, right, I'm going to allow them to take me into this gray spot of where it is uncomfortable, but I know ultimately they're not going to push me over the threshold. And so it, it's playing. It's, it's, uh, there's a um, psychologist called Michael Apter who wrote a book called The Dangerous Edge. And it is about experimenting with where where that edge is and looking over, over the side and feeling your heart going. And there's a whole level of sort of catharsis involved with that, but also a lot of evolutionary advantage for exploration and and going to that edge and pushing yourself just that bit further. And that's where thrill lives, and that will make you feel hugely alive. So that explains some of the sort of riskier things, pushing yourself that you really want to want, really wouldn't want to do. Um, I mean, clearly there are some people who, whose you know profiles would preclude them from going on various things because they know they might feel sick, they know they they really don't like fast rides, or they don't want to look stupid. And you know, there's that's fine. They can hold the coats, they can take the photographs. But obviously, we need to think about those people and what they're going to get in that that sort of contract. Um, but and then there are themes. You say uh, ghost attractions, uh, let's say haunted attractions, dark rides. Uh, there's nothing scarier than going on a British, um, or probably actually probably touring your carnival circuits as well, on an old ghost train and knowing that there's a real operator who's going to touch you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, grab your grab your knee. So you're going, yeah, you can have all the most fantastic effects, but if there's a human, you know, is kind of like stalking you, it's just like it's just not nice. I mean, I don't know, I, it, but it just makes me laugh with hysterics. And I think it's there's a sort of uncomfortableness as well about those that that kind of social dynamics and storytelling and disbelief, which again. I think uh, a little bit like listening to fairy tales, you kind of want to go to those darker places to see what it feels like. But ultimately, you know, in three minutes, you're going to spat, be spat out at the other end, uh, much more enriched uh, and and uh, and a happier person. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that just reminded me of a, a walkthrough attraction I did a couple of weeks ago where it said our, our actors are permitted to touch you. And I thought, well, my fear level just went, <laughs> hey, uh, my comfort level just went down. But 
like you said, when you walk into a theme park, you you have this unwritten contract that you turn yourself over to. I think that's that's uh, uh, such a fascinating way of looking at it. Um, I, I would love to know, you were recently part of uh, an excellent panel interview on NPR regarding the safety of thrill rides and roller coasters. I, I thought there were so many amazing points shared by by you alongside the other panelists. Uh, and the uh, uh, the interview was was about really kind of reassurance, I would say, to to the general public when they're visiting parks, when they're riding rides and attractions. Uh, curious as far as some of uh, your top points that uh, that you made in that interview that uh, that you'd like to share with our audience as well. Yeah, well, I think that the, the the first one was what a a brilliant mode of failure that was. I mean, if you're going to want something to fail, it's got to fail positive you know and that that sense that if something's going wrong uh i mean thank goodness for for you know for uh henry Miller and his understock wheels for, for starters i mean i've 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 i designed the world's first inverting playground slide which used only centripetal force to keep somebody on the inside of the curve and that was for a tv show in the uk and we kind of like know what happens if you fall out of a curve so you know the first real takeaway was those safety features really worked brilliantly and that is the mode of failure you want to happen and secondly you know we're in this space and i touched on it earlier where theme parks um and attractions particularly ones that want to make you feel that you're going to that dangerous edge but we're not in reality so we are trading as an industry on this ambiguous gray area where we're asking people, we're saying, you're doing something really heroic. You're going on the, the fastest, the tallest, the most loops, and you know, and, and you will come out of this real heroes. And then you, they're going, oh, wow, we're actually you know, right on the edge of like cutting edge rides and we don't know what's going to happen. And then when the ride, you know, something like this happens, you go, oh, actually, no, no, it's incredibly safe. You're going, oh, no, look at this other bit of the curve. We were actually hiding from you. And no wonder that the, the, the press and the public are going, no, 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 you told us we're like living on the edge. And look at these people like on the edge here. And you go, well, actually, no, it's incredibly safe because we were, you know, this is part of the unwritten contract. It's actually behind the scenes. It's all incredibly safe. So I think in those terms, you you suddenly see where the tension comes from. The press are still playing on the story of, well, they're still, they're still inside the experience. They're still going, this is really dangerous. This is like high adrenaline, blah, blah, blah. And you're going, well, actually, no, these people have, have stopped. And it's more like a, a processing plant. At that point, I'm going, this is like a robotics processing lamp. All the interlocks have happened. These guys are safe. It's uncomfortable, clearly. Nobody ever wants this to happen. But look, it's, it's, it was resolved safely. So I think, it, you know, again, it's, it comes down to that theatre. And once you understand that and the, the, the way that, as an industry, we both... Um, we both utilize, uh, I suppose we have a symbiotic relationship with the media, the marketing and press. Equally, you know, they can, uh, they'll want to continue their story uh, when something goes wrong. And that's kind of understandable, but which is why the NPR show was brilliant because in the UK, when there was an accident um, on the Smiler at Alton Towers, it took, because I've been heavily involved in the marketing of that ride uh, a few years earlier, um the the the, the phone started ringing six minutes after the story broke and i was going i'm not answering that because nobody in the industry is going to thank me for any kind of knee-jerk responses etc 
Whereas, uh, and it was quite right. I mean, the, all these stories I knew were going to be on that with that flavour. But the NPR story, um, I realised they gave it some time. They were clearly gathering together some people from the industry who were, uh, you know, who had some uh, insights, real insights to bring to this. And I think they did an excellent job. And it was great to be amongst such great company, uh, looking at it from a very sort of um, sober perspective, you know, from, from an industry perspective. So, Brendan, one of the things I'm curious about is you obviously have a, a, a deep well of knowledge and passion for what you do. Um, but I'm sure there's other people out there that say, I want to be a thrill engineer. I want to do that. I want to design roller coasters and, and all these experiences. What advice do you have for people that might be uh, interested in pursuing a career like that? Well, uh, I mean, you were very good at actually that that was uh a question you pinged over to me earlier because I knew I was expecting this and I was going it's one sense it's hard but the, I always think about the people I've come across who are I go wow you are amazing in this in this field and they tend to come from two types of categories there's either the uh super specialist um now in that I mean if you want to be an engineer, that's great. That's sort of like applied science and physics. But if you really want to become a specialist, become a physicist, become a theoretical physicist. You know, that is your initial passion. Then move on to its application. And you will have, you know, same with mathematics. So you can become quite pure, but still go, I want to work in that industry. But having that, that depth of knowledge, you will be in huge demand. The second area I'd say would be um, would be the design creative industries. Uh, so designer, artist, architect. Not only have you got the lateral thinking, so rather than taking the deep dive, we're looking at making lateral connections. So anybody who's used to uh, having uh, communicating into with, with interdisciplinary teams, so being able to uh, talk the language of everybody, understand all those components, understand how the the, the collective um, is uh, forms something which is greater than any individual could make. Uh, all those kind of di disciplines work really well. And and the third one is you know anything which deals with time based media, so um, animation, film, uh, live performance. I think there's a really interesting crossover between uh life performance if you look at uh, uh companies like punch drunk in the uk who you know often get or you know meow wolf as well who get involved in sort of very much stuff which is more sort of pre-show dark show type type of stuff uh there's a real interplay there but time-based media is also so i think any of those i mean actually and if you were time-based media i'd always say to somebody you'll never go wrong if you study history because you're going to be able to structure stories tell great stories and uh, that will always stand you in good stead. And again, from that, then you can go into the more creative. So I think it's real, get a real bedrock um, in those areas, but never lose sight of where you want, where you're going to apply that ultimately. Get your specialism. Excellent. Brendan, before we started recording, we uh, we all acknowledge that the most difficult part of the interview would be finding where to end it and how to end it, because I feel like we could we could just keep talking for uh, for quite a long time. I can think of so many more questions that I want to ask you. So maybe we'll we'll have to have you back sometime for part two. Uh, out of respect for your time and for our audience as well, if people want to get a hold of you directly or if they want to know more about Studio GoGo or Thrill Laboratory, where would you send them? 
So yeah, if you want to learn, know more about Thrill Laboratory, go to www.thrilllaboratory.com. Thrill Laboratory, all one word. Um, so there you can see more about the science and the experimental side. If you want to know more about my work creating rides and VR experiences, go to studiogogo.com. So studiogogo, all one word, dot com. And you'll be able to pick up my email address and contact me directly from either of those two. Excellent. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for your time today. It was so uh, fascinating to hear all the things about emotions and thrills. And uh, I echo what Josh said. We could we could have you back for two or three more episodes. Um, but thank you again for your time. And for everybody out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.